All right, part 47 of Law and Gospel. What thesis are we on? Number eight. And what is thesis number eight? All right. The, uh, the word, the, for those who may not know or didn't hear, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins. So someone who's already broken, in terror, bothered, convicted, upset about their sins, they do not need the law. They need the gospel. And those who are living securely in their sins, they, are not, they don't feel bad about their sins. They're not upset about their sins. They don't feel any guilt, any shame. They do not get any gospel. They get all law. Okay, they get all law. So we have to make sure if, if we mess that up, everything goes wrong. And really the key verse for this th- uh, thesis is what verse? First Timothy chapter 1. 8 through 10, all right, which talks about using the law how? Lawfully, meaning that there is an unlawful way to use it, okay? Very important. And so as we made it through this, I want to make sure we make this very clear. When we find, and because this was kind of the major point that really developed this morning in looking at this, if we see someone living in their sin, and they seem to be secure in their sin, and they don't seem to be bothered in any way by their sin, and we're going to give them law because they don't get gospel, right? Why? What's the motivation for giving them the law? Okay, not to change behavior. Not to change behavior. Not to change. If your goal is to get them to change their behavior, you're missing the whole point. The whole point is to get them to turn to what? Drive them to the gospel because what, should, what whenever, this is very important, and in the Christian life, this should be our perspective. The thing that must motivate change should not be law, it should be gospel. But the Christian world operates under the perspective that we want behavior to change. In fact, many Christians want behavior to change way before... In fact, some people just view the gospel as a way to change behavior. Christianity, especially in America, and especially if you kind of go into the 1800s into the 1900s, Christianity, whether we like it or not, just became a system of morality. And we wanted Christianity to change to impact the morality of people so that people would act in a moral way. But once you reduce Christianity to moralism, it stops becoming Christianity. There's all kinds of systems of morality. Right? Christianity is not morality. Christianity is about a people who are immoral, who can never be uh, uh, moral according to the standard that Christianity presents. What is the the, the, uh, system, the the level of morality does Christianity present? Perfection. Can anyone meet that standard? No. No way, shape, or form can we. That's, and, and again, this, this, goes to very, this has very important ramifications on hermeneutics. Many Christians look at the Sermon on the Mount going, this is how we should live. No, the Sermon on the Mount saying this is how we should live, but that no one can. No one can. And we, can, we see that right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be ye 
Perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. If your hermeneutic doesn't account for that, then something is horribly wrong. It's not about giving us a system of morality. It's about saying, here's a standard. You don't meet that standard. You're guilty. What you need is a righteousness that is not your own, that is given to you by Christ in, in imputation, right? If we miss that, so, but so many times Christians just look at the world and like, and, and you'll hear the world say this, right? Oh man, this world is messed up. And that will say something like, they need Jesus. But they say they need Jesus for what purpose? So they will live differently. Perceiving Christianity as a system of morality. Why do they need Jesus? Not to live better, but to be declared righteous by imputation, Does, I wanna, we, if, we, if we look, if we don't get this right, then we just need to all go home because, we, because Christianity has been hijacked into a system of morality. Christianity, does, look, there is no tangible proof in any meaningful way that just giving people, I mean, in fact, we have, we have actually, we do have tangible proof. Law doesn't make people better. <clears throat> We've got the entire Bible to prove that, Right? Israel received every law you can think of. And they broke every law they could think of. Because the law doesn't change. And, if you, and what Christianity, and, and this is what, the whole idea, well, if we'll put the Ten Commandments all over the country, we'll change it. No, Israel had the Ten Commandments. They started sacrificing their own children. Law doesn't change the heart. What's the problem? Depravity. That depravity never can meet God's standard because God's standard demands perfection. So Christianity is not about us becoming better people in action. Christianity is about an imperfect people being declared perfect by what kind of righteousness? Imputed, not infused. The minute you believe in infused righteousness, we have, we have abandoned the Reformation and we have returned where? Back to the Catholic Church. Catholic Church says you, are, you get infused righteousness. We believe in imputed righteousness. But you listen to Christians talk and they really believe that we get what? An infused righteousness, which is the, 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 it messes everything up. So people who are secure in their sin, we give them the law not to change behavior, but to drive them to the gospel. Correct? Because what does every sinner, I want to make this very clear. What does every sinner need? A change of action or being given an imputed righteousness? An imputed righteousness, an imputed righteousness, an imputed righteousness, an imputed righteousness. If you get that wrong, you've destroyed Christianity in so many ways that I don't even know where to begin. Like you basically have abandoned biblical Christianity and it no longer exists in your mind, okay? Does that make sense? All right, now, um, let's see, where, where did we end? All right, we ended with uh, the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. Is that where we ended? Oh, the thief on the cross, okay, yes. Okay, and the Philippian jailer, okay. Oh, yes, okay, I see that. And then that's where we stopped, yes? And we just, we just got to this part. The second part of the thesis tells us that the word of God is not rightly divided if the gospel is preached to such as live securely in their sins. In other words, someone lives in their sins, well, they do not get the gospel, right? We mentioned that. Everybody with me? All right, good. 
The latter error is as dangerous as the former. So both errors are, are equally dangerous, right? And what are the two errors? Again, I want to make sure everybody got this. What are the two errors? Error number one? Giving law to someone who's already broken, humbled, and scared, and humiliated by their sin. And what is the other error? Giving the gospel to someone who's living in their sin and they just don't care. Law goes to one, gospel goes to the other. Everybody got that? Right, we, 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 we're experts on this now? Yes? All right. The, the, the latter error is as dangerous as the former. Incalculable damage is done if the consolation of the gospel are offered to secure sinners. Or if one preaches to a multitude in such a manner that secure sinners imagine that the comfort of the gospel is meant for them. The gospel is not intended for secure sinners. We cannot, of course, prevent secure sinners from coming into our churches and hearing the gospel. And it devolves upon the preacher to offer the entire comfort of the gospel and all its sweetness, however, in such a manner that the secure sinners realize that the comfort is not intended for them. The whole manner of the preacher's presentation must make them realize this fact. Now, I'm going to stop right here and say this. I, I somewhat disagree, all right, because you know my philosophy. What they are claiming is what the, what, what the preacher must do what? What are they claiming the preacher has to do? It's the responsibility of the preacher to do what? Preach law and gospel in every sermon and to do so in such a way that the sinner who's securing their sins doesn't think the gospel is for them. And the person who's broken don't think that the law is for them. Well, do you realize what that would turn? Every sermon would just be like, well, not only how would I know that, it would be every sermon would spend 20 minutes me trying to explain. Now listen, if you're in this condition, the gospel's not for you. But if you're in this condition, and it's like, the law is not for you. That would, that, that would destroy what? The text. Exactly. Okay. Okay. You, you, well, you wouldn't even, but you would have to spend 20 minutes offering an explanation before you even got to the text. You cannot, and I am going to be dogmatic upon this, and, and, and this has to be something we have to get down. You cannot impose any predetermined perspective upon the text. What are you to do? Teach, I, I don't even like the word preach anymore, but teach the text. Don't worry about it. Now you say, well, someone could leave thinking that they're safe. I can't worry about that. Whatever the text is, is what must be preached. Because if I start worrying about that, then I've got to, here's what the text says. Like, the text may say, you're all forgiven in Christ, right? That may be the text. And then I'd have to come on and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, because I don't know if you're secure in your sin and you've never been broke. I can't do that. What the text says is what has to be preached. You're like, well, what if they walk away thinking the wrong thing? I, I can't, there's no way to ever prevent that. Right? I mean, I can preach a, I can preach a text that really emphasizes the, the humanity of Jesus. Right? And someone could walk away thinking, well, Jesus is just a man and he's not God. I could preach a text that emphasizes the deity of Christ and they could walk away thinking Jesus is God, but he's not truly a... For every 
thing. There's always like, well, they could think this, they could think this, they could think this. And you could spend half of your life in every sermon going, okay, hey guys, I said this, okay, but it could be this. And, and you would never get anywhere. Well, you know, first, well, first of all, yeah, people have to show up, right? Okay, that's true. Okay, but the point is, it's just responsibility of the listener to really be pursuing the text itself. There's only so much, look, if you think of how much, how much we're, emphasize, we're influenced by so many things, the amount of time we're influenced by Scripture is very minimal. And, I, and the preacher can't fix it all in one sermon. There's just no way. Right? It's not, even, even in a public school, teachers know this. Look, if the kids aren't paying attention, if they're not doing, I, the teacher can't go back in every class and do what? Okay, look, the fundamental principle of this mathematical formula starts all the way back here. No, they're like, you're supposed to have gotten that in third grade. At some point, you have to do what? You got to move on. And I know that that creates major problems, but the pastor is limited in what he can do. There's only so much he can do. But I do not, I disagree that, like, here's the theological template. And look, I, mean, I, I say this across the board. If I'm Reformed, I don't bring a Reformed theology upon the text. If I'm non-Reformed, or if I'm semi-Pelagian or Pelagian, I don't bring that upon the text. What do I do with the text? Teach the text. Whatever it is. Sometimes, you may be like, well... So are you saying, and I, sometimes I've had people even here go, so wait, are you saying that, that goes against what, I, I, that, if whatever the text says, it's not my job to try to go, whoa, 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 wait, no. And sometimes you say, well, the text makes me uncomfortable. It, the text makes me uncomfortable every time I look at it. Because sometimes I'm like, wait, what is this saying? I don't understand. But I can't just impose, because so, and, which demonstrates this. What a lot of people want in church is not the actual study of the text. They want to say, this is the five things we believe. Just make sure I hear that in every sermon. And I'm like, no, I'm not playing that game. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what we believe. And I know this, God doesn't care what we believe. He cares about truth. And whenever you study the text, you, we're always confronted th- with things that go, well, wait a minute, that makes no sense. Well, what about this? And what about, I understand the struggle. All we can do is keep what? Keep moving through the text. Keep moving through the text. Keep moving through the text. Sometimes what we struggle here, we get an answer later on. Right? Sometimes we'll find out, wait a minute, uh, we were wrong. And that's Okay. But people get nervous and they get defensive and they're like, no, 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 no. It can't be that way. Well, isn't it amazing that you can just tell the text what it can and can't be? Right? Hey, it, it can't be that way. Well, well, uh, then why, why do you even go to church? You're obviously God and you obviously know what's right because you don't want to study the text. Because studying the text, you're going to find yourself confronted with things constantly that you're like, oh, what? I don't know, if I believe that, what about this and what about that? That's the, be- that's the whole journey of the Christian. So they're, they're imposing the idea that we are to do what? To the, that the preachers to do what to the text? To make sure that gospel and law is preached every single time, and not only is it preached, 
that it's then clearly articulated who the law is for and who the gospel is for. And I just see that if I do that, there's no point in even preaching the text. The text is just what? A pretext, just a launching platform to get to a theological conclusion that already exists. And my job is not to use the Bible to get to our theological conclusions. My job is to get to the text, and wherever the text leads us, no matter how messy it may be, that's where we end up. Right? Does that make sense? I, 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 we've got to get that out. All right, now, go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Okay, this may derail us for the rest of the night. All right? Now, I know what they want me to do with this, but you know I'm not going to play the game, right? Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 7. Immediately that tells us what? Sermon on the Mount. All right, now, it says this. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Everybody see that? All right. Now, if we, before we try to understand the verse, what's the general principle being given here in this verse? What's the general principle being given here? What's the general principle being given here? I know you're like, well, look, we did enough work this morning on Psalm 139. I'm not here to do more work tonight, but that's, that's, that's the way it works, okay? Well, let's just, let, first of all, let's just make it general. Let's make it, let's not, when we look for the general principle, we don't want to try to dig too far in for an interpretation because sometimes we can miss the general principle by trying to find an interpretation, right? So the general principle is this. There are certain things not for certain individuals. Would we agree? Don't cast that. Now we got to figure out what holy is referring to here. We got to figure out what pearls is referring to here. But they're saying whatever is holy, don't give it to dogs, whoever the dogs may be. Right? And then who, the pearls, we don't give that to swine. So we got basically dogs and pigs, and certain things are for not dogs and pigs, okay? Now, obviously, it's using very kind of blunt language, but saying there are certain things not given to certain people. Now, that, that raises lots of questions, right? Because we would think what? Wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem very nice, right? That doesn't seem. That, 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 that's a hard time. That's a hard thing to try to figure out. So let's just, let's just play a little game. Now, I've got the book right here that's going to lead. But let's just do this. Grab the Blue Letter Bible app. Use whatever device you have. Look up dogs. I'm not saying that this is going to fix anything, but let's just, just see what happens here. Right? This is not originally in my plan, but you know what? It, it's always fun to do this. Dogs. Let's just go with New Testament, all right? I don't know how much Old Testament would have bearing on this, but it's okay. How many, I, mean, I, I doubt it's used that many times. Used five times? Does everybody agree it's used five times? 
Okay, we got five times and five verses, right? I have it six, ver- six verses is what I have. Okay, all right, but here we go. We have Matthew 7, 6, which is where? Oh, Stacy's got eight. So everybody's device is saying different. Okay, so that's going to create some problems. Okay, all right. But the first one is Matthew 7, 6. Does everyone agree that Matthew 7, 6 is the first use? All right, that's where we are. So we don't get any answers here, yes? Second usage. Matthew 15, 26. But he answered and said, it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to... Same principle showing up again. There's something that we have that we're not to give to someone. All right? So far, so good? All right, next. 1527. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So whoever this woman is agrees with the concept, right? And says, hey, but even dogs get crumbs. Okay. Still not helping us yet. Next. Mark 727. It's the same story, right? But Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children bread and to cast it unto dogs. Now let's stop right here before we continue. Go uh, open up your Bibles, open up actual Bibles if you can. Go to Matthew 15, 26 and look at context and see if we can figure out who the dogs are in Matthew 15, 26. Well, I know we all have our assumptions of who it is, but you know what I like to do with that is test it. Okay, a Canaanite. What what do we know about the Canaanites? All right. What what do we think? What do we think? What do we know about Canaanites? Do we need to look up in the uh, dictionary? Do we? Let, let's let's do that. Okay. Canaanites, an ancient tribe that lived in the land of Canaan before they were displaced by the nation of Israel. The Canaanites, along with the Amorites, settled into land well before 2000 BC. They go on through here, right? Although both Canaanites and Amorites were established in Canaan before 2000 BC. The Canaanites, therefore, were a highly civilized people in many ways when Joshua led the Israel. But, but basically, what do we know about the Canaanite culture? Okay. Gentiles? Okay, all right, Gentiles. Okay, all right, Gentiles. All right, I, I know, I'm just making sure we're all good to, to know that, right? Canaanites are Gentiles, agreed? Okay, so dogs here seems to be referencing what? Does everybody feel comfortable in Matthew 15 that that's what it's referencing? Right? I mean, look, if you want to be super safe, you could say it's referring to Canaanites, but clearly it's referring to non-Jews. Would that be a better way of stating it? All right. Okay, Mark 7.27 goes with the same story, right? Everybody want to look to verify Mark 7.27 is the same story? Okay. Okay. Once again, though, whether you, whether you want to refer to her as a Canaanite or whatever she wants to refer to her, she's not a Jew, correct? She's a Gentile. All right, agreed? All right, Mark 7, 28, same idea. The Lord gets, uh, the, the dogs get the crumbs, right? How about Luke 16, 21? Is it the same story? Okay. Actual dogs. Actual dogs. Okay, so 
Okay, all right. So, actually referred to as dogs here. Okay, now, go back to Matthew 7. So, dogs can refer to what in the text, it seems? Can refer to Gentiles. Now, let's go back and see if do we have any, do we get any idea here of what maybe is going on here? Okay. Or we're back in Matthew 7, correct? All right. Now, it's verse 6, correct? That's where it's found, yes? All right, let's go to verse 1 to 6, or 1 to 5, and see if we have anything giving us any kind of context. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the, smote, the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the, the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And then all of a sudden, verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Seems really out of place, doesn't it? Right? And so I don't know if Gentiles fit this particular concept. But what seems to be the concept is that the dog is not someone we should give what to? That which is holy. And we obviously don't think that's referring to specifically Gentiles because Jesus does give the gospel to Gentiles, right? Yes? Clearly, once you get to Acts, right? Okay, so that doesn't seem to work. So he's just seeming to have a general principle here, right? Maybe? Okay, right? Oh, okay, Philippians, right? We have a, okay, mine my, my did not give the one in Philippians. Okay, Philippians what? Philippians 3.2, all right? Let's look at Philippians 3.2. Does this offer any help? Philippians 3.2. All right, uh, Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you. To, uh, to me is indeed, is indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of... Dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the, circum- of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God and spirit. So, the dogs here, what do you think the dogs here refer to? Yeah, clearly this seems to be referring to those who are either false teachers or have rejected the gospel in some way, shape, or form. Don't you agree? Does everyone feel comfortable with that? Yes? Okay, so, the, so dogs, it seems, in the text, was there another dog reference? Okay, hang on. We, we, everybody's got all kinds of different ones. Okay, let's go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. What verse? 15. 15. All right, we'll go through verse 12. We'll go to verse 12 for context. Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates uh, into the city. <coughs> I'm going to sneeze. For without are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loveth 
uh, and uh, maketh a lie. All right, was there another reference to dogs? Second Peter 222 Peter 2:22. Yeah, it's interesting that all the different resources led us in different directions. Okay, Second Peter 2.22, and what does it say? Oh, the dog uh, turned to his own vomit again, all right? The dog has turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that has, was washed to her wallowing in the mire, all right? So, oh, okay, yeah, now we have the dog and the pig. Okay. Right. Okay, well, we have a couple of concepts here. Okay, so everybody ready? You may want to write down these concepts for dog or dogs. Did you have another one, say? Okay, all right, here's the basic concept we've seen. Dogs clearly seem to have a reference to Gentiles, which means unbelievers, right? Because the Gentiles are viewed as unbelievers, right? Okay, unbelievers... Clearly, it's referencing possibly false teachers in Philippians, right? And then in Revelation, it's once again referring to people who are like, the dogs are outside. They're the ones who don't obey. They don't care. They have nothing to do with anything. And then in Peter, it's the dog returning to the vomit. It's the person who's going back to their sin because they don't care, right? They, they, they love it. and They want to come back to it, right? So in all cases, the dog is referencing the person. I think, I think we can safely say... It sounds like someone who seems pretty safe and secure and loves their sin. They don't seem broken or upset about it. Okay? So Matthew is saying, don't give that which is holy to the person who is what? Secure. Do you see why it's being used in the book? Don't give the gospel. Would you say the the gospel is holy? Yes. Don't give it to the person who is a dog, who is the one who is an unbelieving who doesn't care uh, and is comfortable in their sin. What do they need? They need the law. Now, you could argue, though, however, the law is holy as well. So then you could argue, well, how do, that, how do I work it? You could be an, argue, an argument here. All right, but the next one, so go back to Matthew 7, 6. Now, we have swine. Swine. Now, in Peter, the swine is connected with what? Basically, the thing that returns back to the slop, right? Hey, you can clean the pig up, but the pig still loves its sin, so it's going to go back. Don't give, now it says, don't give pearls. Now, the gospel definitely would be a reference to, like, the pearl of of great price, something of great value, all right? Now, uh, we could probably look up, how many references is there to swine in the New Testament, just to see? How many? I don't think there's a lot. Do I need to look it up? Swine. I have 13 verses. Okay. I think most of these are going to be referring to actual swine, right? Of course, the first one is Matthew 7, 6, which we've already looked at, right? Matthew 8, 30, and there was a good way off from uh, and heard of many swine feeding. See that in Matthew 8, 30? That's actual swine. Yes. Matthew 8, 31. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. Once again, actual swine. Matthew 8, 32. What happens to the swine? They run violently. 
actual pigs, right? Mark 5.11, there was nigh into the mountain a great herd of swine feeding actual pigs. Mark 5.12, all the devils beside him, actual pigs. 5.13, what happens to the pigs or the swine? They drown in the sea. Everybody got that? Mark 5.14, and they that fed the swine fled, actual, once again, actual pigs. Mark 5.16, and they saw it, told him how it befell to them that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine, actual pigs. Mark Luke 8.32, there was a herd of many swine feeding, the exact same story. Luke 8.33, actual swine. Luke 15.15, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now, one thing we do know about the swine in the Jewish mind is what? They're unclean. They're unclean. So once again, it's connected to that which is unclean or, and then we know uh, Luke 15, 16, what does he end up doing? This is the prodigal son. He's feeding the swine and he starts eating the leftover food to them in Luke 15, 16. All right. So the swine is, is almost always referenced to what? Actual pigs. But we do know in Jewish culture, they're unclean. So now go back to Mark or Matthew 7, 6. And now we can kind of get a, an idea of what's happening here. We're not to give that which is holy to the dogs, to those who are basically secure in their sin, or to that which is unclean, the pearls to that which is unclean. In other words, this seems to be implying we do not give the gospel to whom? The unclean thing that has, is comfortable in their uncleanliness. Now, that's exactly what the book is going to do with this. All right, listen carefully. Matthew 7, 6. What is meant by what is holy? Nothing, nothing else than the word of Christ. What is meant by pearls? The consolation of the gospel with the grace, righteousness, and salvation it proclaims. Of these things we are not to speak to dogs, that is to enemies of the gospel, nor to swine, that is such as want to remain in their sins and are seeking their heaven uh, and their bliss and the filth of their sins. So they refer to dogs as more as the enemies, which is the Philippians passage. And the, and the swine, they refer to those who basically want to live in the pigsty. They are not to get what? The gospel. What are they to get? Law. And why do we want them to have the law? Not that they will get out of the pigsty, but that they will come to Christ, who then will declare them righteous based off faith. And what kind of righteousness? Imputed, 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 okay? All right, everyone got that? It took a little bit of time, but we worked through that. Now go to Isaiah 26.10. Going to run out of time. I mean, this is a long thesis. They spent a lot of time on this one. Yeah, they, man, they, they, they really want us to get this one down. I don't know how many pages it is in the original book, because the original book is like 500 pages long. So, Isaiah 26.10. What do we find in Isaiah 26.10? Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet... Will he not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness? Will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord? 
How does the NIV translate Isaiah 26.10? Oh, now, everyone hear that? Say that again. See, even though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Right. So if you show grace to those in the, uh, who are wicked, and they regard not the majesty of the Lord. All right. You get the idea? Okay. So what's the concept here? Seemingly the concept here is that, hey, don't show grace to the wicked. What does the wicked need? Law. They need the law. That's, that's the emphasis that they're trying to make here. Listen to how they describe it. it, it uh, Isaiah 26.10, it is quite useless to offer mercy to the godless. They imagine either that they do not need it or that they already have all of it. The trifling sins, they say, of which they are guilty have long been forgiven. To a person of this stripe, I am, not, I am not to preach the gospel. I am not to offer him mercy, for that is what preaching the gospel means, because he will not be benefited by it. A wicked person who wants to remain in his sins does not see the majesty of the Lord. He does not see what a great treasure is offered him. He does not understand the doctrine of salvation by grace. Either he spurns it, or he shamefully misapplies it. He thinks, if mere faith is all that is necessary for my salvation, my sins too are forgiven, I can remain such as I am, and I shall still go to heaven. I too believe in my Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're talking to someone who's what? I'm good to go. I don't care. I don't need it. You don't give them gospel. What do they get? Law. And again, let me stress this. Why do we give them the law? Not to change their behavior, okay? Look, if y'all, there there has to come a point that every time I ask that, y'all start answering it even before I get the question out, right? We have to have that absolutely down. That's got to transform our thinking. Because so much of our Christian life, we think of giving the law to people in order to change their behavior. We want behavioral modification. We don't want the person comfortable in their sins to just change their behavior. We want them to be driven truly to the cross so that they will truly see their sin and be broken over it. All right? If all it does is change their behavior, we we think it makes us, here's what I think. When we see the sinner change their behavior, it makes us feel good. It becomes more about us. It can't be about you. It's got to drive them to the gospel. And once, because if they truly come to the gospel, they will know how bad their sin is. You don't have to convince them of it. They will confess it. And then what hopefully will happen is because of the gospel, they will now have the right motivation to change the behavior. Law is not the right motivation. How long does law last in changing behavior? Not long at all. Okay. Not only, not as soon as the conviction leaves, usually as soon as they feel like there's no threat of instantaneous punishment, right? Typically, what the the only reason law ever changes behavior is because the punishment associated with it. Once the punishment, they feel that they they can get away from the punishment or avoid the punishment, because they never really came to convince that the action was wrong in the first place. 
Right? I mean, I, look, I know it as a pastor. I can sit here and preach and preach and preach about something being wrong, and, and people will just, like, well, whatever. They're going to do whatever they want anyway. Now, they may not tell me. They may hide it from me. But unless they are convinced themselves, when, when law is preached and people are broken of the law to get to the gospel, once they get to the gospel, the gospel is all about acknowledging how sinful I am and how wrong that action was. That, remember, repentance first and foremost, and we have to get this right, is a change of mind. We always want to make repentance a change of behavior. But a change of behavior is irrelevant if the mind hasn't been changed, right? If the mind hasn't been changed, the behavior will just revert right back to it. It'll be like a dog returning to its vomit. Because you don't believe that it's wrong in the first place. Law gets to gospel. Gospel is the acceptance of my sin and of what Christ has done for me. Does that make sense? We've got to get that down. That's so important. All right. Um, A pattern after, and you see how much time do we have here? Can we get to this paragraph? Can we finish this paragraph? Because this, this, man, oh, we're going to try. All right. We're going to try. This is a long paragraph. We'll see if we can get to at least one point in this paragraph. Here we go. A pattern after which we are to model our preaching we find in the first place in Christ. Now he says, okay, now remember, they're trying to establish a model in preaching and you know how I feel about that. I don't believe there's a model in preaching, right? I believe that we simply, here's what I do. I open the Bible and I'm like, that's, what's, that's the model. The model is determined by what? The text. I'm like, what do we do with that? I have no idea. All right, that's what we're going to study. And it may not sound like the, the, the sermon from the week before because the text is different. Different approach, different, different difficulties, different questions, and we allow the text to determine. We don't pr- impose a predetermined model upon preaching. I cannot stand that. I wish, all, I wish seminaries would just stop teaching preaching because they don't teach preaching. They teach speech. And I'm sick of speeches, right? I want the text. Okay, here we go. A pattern after, so they say, here's the model. They say, first we find it in Christ. Observe, now he says, observing his conduct, we find that whenever he met with secure sinners, such as the self-righteous Pharisees in those days certainly were, he had not a drop of comfort for them, but called them serpents and a viper's brood, pronounced a tenfold woe against them, revealed their, their hypocrisy, assigned to them perdition, and told them they would not escape eternal damnation. Now that is true. When he came to the self-righteous Pharisee, it was merciless. It was brutal. It was, I mean, well, there's a little bit of what they're kind of calling for that, right? That as a preacher, I've got to determine, okay, well, these people are a bunch of self-righteous, and I, but who am I to judge? So that's why my approach is what? Preach the text. And guess what? And, and that's sometimes that's what I've, I've getting, I get bothered by because sometimes people will be like, wait, are you talking about me? It's not, look, I, I'm just preaching what's here. If, it, if you think it's you, that's not me, okay? That, that's, that's you got to do it. I can't say. 
I got to preach the text. And some, because sometimes people are like, he must be mad at someone. No, no, the text is obviously mad at someone. Right? Right? And then sometimes you may be like, well, wait, man, I know there's a problem. Why is he not saying anything about the problem? Because the text doesn't. That's what I'm supposed to do. Now, of course, I'm a human and uh, my own emotions can get involved just like it can for anybody, right? But that's what I'm supposed to do. And and, And the beauty of that, if you can force yourself to do it, you stay out of all of that stuff. You don't get into all of that stuff. Now, the problem is in preaching, you're going to use illustrations. You're going to use things that are most relevant to you at the time. And so then some, sometimes it may show up. But the job is to preach the text. And I, but I do 100% agree that when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, he did what? No mercy. Now, we do know sometimes... Now, when, and preaching, I don't believe you can do it that way. You've got to preach whatever the text is, right? Okay, I can't go, oh, wait. I've got all the self-righteous people came for the second hour. The first hour, it was the godly people. Okay, well, in the second hour, I'm not going to show any mercy. I, I can't, know. i got to preach whatever the text is. Because the text may be one of all mercy. I can't say, hey, guys, this text is all about mercy. But you guys don't get that because you're all trash. Right? Now, sometimes I may want to do that. Right? But you can't. Right? you got to preach the text. Does that make sense? Now, but when it comes to personal dealings and when it comes to dealing with ourselves, sometimes we know what we're dealing with because we know a person. And we have to know this person needs law. Sometimes, guess what I need? I need nothing but law. And sometimes, guess what I need? God. Sometimes we have to know what we need. But when it comes to preaching in a general way, there's just no way. You're right, I can't make the determination. There's just no way. Even dealing with someone personally, you've got to be very careful because sometimes you can perceive that person doesn't feel bad about their sin and you don't have a clue what they feel. Because we always think that we know that don't even feel bad for what they did. And who are you to know that? Did you enter into them? You don't know their guilt or their struggle. You don't, you don't have any clue. So we always have to be really careful. We've got to be very careful with that. But I do believe Jesus could do that. And why could he do that? Because he knew the heart. And when I become God, then I can do that. Right? So I always hate when they say, we need to preach like Jesus preached. Well, <laughs> yeah, when I become omniscient, I could probably pull some of this off, right? Okay. All right, they go on to say, um, although he knew that these very persons would nail him to the cross, he fearlessly told them the truth. That is the point to be noted by preachers. Though knowing in advance that they will share the fate of the Lord Jesus, they must preach the law in all its severity to secure reckless sinners, to hypocrites and men who are their enemies. I'm going to state it differently. The preacher has to know that whether the people are going to hate him or whether the people are going to love him, he's got to teach the text. And if they don't like it, trust me, they will leave. And you can't worry about it. Now you can get discouraged and you can get depressed, but you just, because look, sometimes I know, Oh, this, that, oh, that's going to be the end of that. Sometimes you just know it's on its way. And what do you do? You still got to deal with what you think the text says. You still got to deal with what's there. Trust me. I mean, if, if you're a preacher worrying about who's going to leave, you'll just spend your life just going like, 
I know what you, I, trust me, if I was in a situation where my livelihood, and, and, I, and people are going to be shocked by this, but I'm, just, I'm not even going to pretend. After all of the years of preaching, right, you come to the conclusion that you realize that in many cases, people aren't really interested in truth. They're interested in hearing what they want to hear, right? So here, and even though everyone claims they don't want their ears tickled, you know when they, when, as soon as you stop tickling their ears, they tend to disappear. It's amazing, right? Okay, so here, and, I, and I'm saying this dogmatically, and you think I'm using hyperbole. I am not using hyperbole. If I was in a situation where my livelihood depended on my preaching, in other words, whether I'm going to get the next paycheck or what's going to happen, here's what I would do. I would say, who cares? I would sign up for what, because lots of famous preachers use it. Mark Driscoll, lots of people use it. You can sign up for a service, and I would just say for, for my, I need the church to pay for my material for preaching, and I would subscribe, and they send me the sermon every week. And I would just preach whatever they send me. I, I, I would, because if my, li- my livelihood depended upon it, if my livelihood depended upon it. Look, I can talk all big and bad and say, I wouldn't go down that way. I'm saying if my livelihood depended upon it. Because I can talk all big and bad. We all know we all talk big and bad as men until the boss says, if you do this, you're going to get fired. And all of a sudden, we're not so big and bad. Now, when we get home and tell our wives about it, we're like, I told that boss. But in reality, we said, yes, sir, indeed, what he told us, right? In our minds, we want her to think, hey, no, I told him what to do, right? Because we, we all know how it works, right? And you say, well, that's horrible. No, it's not, because the people don't want to hear anything other than what they want. So you've got to, you've got to, you've got to water it down and modify it in such a way. Well, if I've already got to water it down and modify it, why do I care? Just subscribe, get the sermon, and give everyone what they want. They want three points. They want it nice and neat. They want it to feel like a sermon, because feeling like a sermon is all that really matters to anyone, right? They don't really care about the text. Give them the three points, and everyone will go home happy, and and the pastor doesn't have to worry about it. And nobody can be offended. Now, sooner or later, someone's going to be like, why aren't you preaching this? And how come? They're still going to get mad. But at least you can say, well, you can go away because at least the majority of the people I've pacified. Everybody just wants to be pacified and they want it to feel, I don't know what feeling like church even supposed to mean. I don't even know where, I don't know the text where I'm supposed to make it feel like church. What does church, what does church feel like according to this? Does anybody know? I mean, if I wanted to feel like church, we'll meet every single day and I'll preach till midnight. Everybody will know, all of a sudden doesn't want it to feel like church. Isn't it funny when people tell me they want it to feel like church, they don't want it to feel like how it's described here. Right. Oh yeah, sell all of your possessions. Okay, yeah, I can start and people are like, no, 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 I don't want that. You know, so what you want is for me to give you what you want. And, oh, I'm so sick so sick of the whole church game. I, I'm sick of it. I'm just tired of it. And right now, there, there's, there's all these statistics showing how many people are just like, the church is useless. The church is a waste of time. And more and more people are coming to that conclusion because it's just a game. It's just a big sham that we play. The pastors know that they have to give the people what they want and perform in such a way, and you, ca- you can't really deal with the text in any meaningful way. Because if you dig into the text, people are like, what is this? We've heard the complaints. I didn't come here for this. This feels like seminary. 
And the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is the very definition of a seminary, <laughs> right? Right? Okay. So I, I, it's just, I, the whole thing drives me crazy, but I really would. The people, the people want a certain thing, but they don't want the text. And even here is trying to offer me a template to place upon the text. And I'm not, I can't stand that. The preaching is supposed to be what? The exposition of the text, not the performance of a speech. Everybody knows the difference between a speech and studying the text. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. All right, but I will acknowledge that Jesus uses different approach. Sometimes it's law. Sometimes it's gospel. And I do understand that in certain circumstances, depending on who I'm talking to, and I may realize that I need to give law here or I need to give gospel here. I do understand that sometimes in preaching that you may do more law, more gospel, but when it comes to preaching, it's not based on the people in front of me. It's based off the text in front of me. I don't base it on the people. I base it on the text. And too many times in preaching, you're told you have to know the people and you've got to give them what they need. No, 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 no. I give, I I need to know the text and preach the text. They say, well, the people may not need that text. If it's God's word, they need it. There you go. That's a radically different approach to church. And it obviously is not very popular. (laughs) Okay? It's obviously not very, everyone claims they want that. Everybody's like, Amen! Until they get it. And then amen turns into your trash. And no, I don't want it anymore. But there's nothing. I mean, I don't know what, what, what are you supposed to do? Other than, okay, just tell, I'll subscribe to the sermons. Or, you know, I've, I've said it to people before. I'll email you every Saturday and you can tell me if you approve the sermon. They always get offended by that. I'm like, well, clearly it has to be approved by you. Because if it's not, I get the phone call. Or I get the visit. And it always leads to. They go because I won't give them the, the but, they, but they won't take me up on my offer. I'll send you the sermon on Saturday. They don't, they don't want that because they think that's ridiculous. But in reality, they do want that. So, yeah, I do believe that there's this distinction in law and gospel. We must maintain it. So let's just end with this. Who gets law? Those who are comfortable and secure in their sins. Why do we give them law? What do we not give them the law for? To change their behavior, right? Who gets gospel? Those who are broken, convicted, humiliated, in terror over their sin. And they get nothing but gospel. When it comes to preaching, what's the approach? The text above all else. Because any other approach is you're mandating a a template on the text which will actually blind, keep people from the text, and it refer, then, then it relies on the pastor's ability to know who is present. And I don't know who is present. And you say, well, because I don't know, look, I have hard enough time knowing me. There's no way I can know you. Because there's times I could think that you absolutely need law. You need to be just beaten with a baseball bat with law. And guess what? In some cases, I'm 100% wrong at what did you need. Gospel.
And sometimes I think, man, they're really upset. They need law, and guess what? Or they need gospel, and guess what they actually need? Law. Because, I nev- because you never know. You never know. I mean, you, we always think we know, but we don't, we don't know. And so, yeah, I, I do not like the imposition of templates upon sermons. I, I just I don't like that. I'm so tired of sermons. Sermons need to be banned, burned, and we need to destroy that concept, and it never co- needs to come back into the church again. The, the, the days of the sermon need to come to an end. They need to come to an end. It needs to, it, it, it's run its course. And after thousands of years of sermons, Christians are more illiterate and theologically illiterate than they've ever been. Because you and I, I know all of us have sat in churches our whole lives listening to sermons. In many cases, we knew very little about the Bible, even though we thought, I've heard all of these sermons. Because we were not being given the text, we were being given what? A sermon. And the sermon, to me, is the intentional hiding the text from the people. That's my definition of a sermon. The intentional hiding the text from the people is so that you can preach your theology. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Very important concepts, not only on preaching, but Lord, help us understand what the law is for and what the gospel is for and a correct understanding of both. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...